Welcome to another episode of the Prairie Film Companion. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm your singular host for today, Gerardo Ramos. Today we're doing another deep dive into a single film, a case study, if you will. Again, it'll simply be my own experience watching with it, not necessarily a review or a deep dive, but just things that I pulled from it and things that I love. Before we dive deeper, let's just enjoy this music a bit more. Now why I love this music so much is that it is part of the score of the film that we're going to be talking today. That film is Certain Women by Kelly Reichardt. Now, the film is interesting as it scores really only the piece you're listening to right now. It doesn't have much more than that. Its positioning in the film is unique. It comes at the very end as all of these stories we're watching kind of become woven. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there. Let me just talk about the song and its impact and what I feel. Um, the film is very much a prairie story about life from these three perspectives out on the plains and each one of them in a unique setting but all under the backdrop of this brilliant expanse of land as we see in the opening credits. Now, the song is unique not only because it's the only piece we hear out throughout the whole film but also because it's a singular guitar can almost picture somebody playing it out on the plains on their own contemplating life singing about their hopes their dreams missed opportunities the loved ones they they knew the loved ones they have there's a tinge of melancholy that runs through it maybe it's something inherent in just a singular acoustic guitar can get the sense that it's this lone expression out in this vast, vast prairie. And so I connect with that a lot. I mean, not only because it's beautiful in its own right and how it's fit into the film, but also because my own experience living in a similar city really resonates with that. Um, Sometimes you can feel like you're surrounded by all of this immense natural beauty, rolling hills and mountains that are just in your backyard. Um, but at the same time, in that sense of freedom, feel a sense of, of being trapped, of being trapped in your own experience, of your life, of your failures, of your thoughts. And... Um, yeah, living most of my life in Edmonton, Alberta, I've definitely gotten the sense of that many times, of uh, looking for more, longing for more, and seeing what is held beyond these prairies for a different landscape, for a different perspective, for new experiences, new people, new thoughts. Um, so I just thought that starting with the music and hearing what that sounded like was important because it, uh, it sets a beautiful tone for what the film is. Diving into 
the film and what I received as I was watching it. First off, I just wanted to share Kelly Reichardt has become one of my favorite filmmakers, let alone a favorite film female filmmaker. Um, the beauty about her work is that she has such a sensitivity to the human condition. And although, of course, her perspective is from a woman, it is never heavy-handed from one perspective. It is never um, preachy. In fact, what she excels at is expressing individual desire, pain, and beauty, uh, regardless of what that person is and their background. Yes, the majority of her films have centered around women, but even the few ones that are centered around men have the same sensitivity. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Um, the first film I had seen of hers is uh, a film called Meek's Cutoff, starring uh, Michelle Williams as well. Now, in that film, it's essentially a feminist Western, not in the sense of uh, Annie Get Your Gun and shooting up and becoming the man of the Western, but no, it, it's, a, it's a really honest, sensitive look at the travails of women and what they had to go through during such primitive, simple times. The film itself, that is still talking about Meek's Cutoff, is slow, is simple, but still very powerful and effective in its imagery. And again, that carries over here into certain women. Um, I had also recently watched her latest film, which is called First Cow. Um, I watched it with a few good friends at a local theater that just opened up after all of this pandemic. And the beautiful thing is not only to be back in a cinema watching a film, but especially a film from a filmmaker such as hers, uh, the film had the same feeling. It was slow, calculated, and it was about men. But there was so much sensitivity. There was so much honesty in the representation of their feelings, of of their desires, of the simple endeavors that they wanted to set themselves to. And I bring those two films up as those were my first two interactions with Kelly Reichardt as a filmmaker. And I decided I got to dive into more. So as I started watching certain women, I expected these similar approach to these stories. So what certain women is, is a triptych that is a three part story you could even look at it as three separate short stories she does do an incredible work to weave them together at the end not in like a perfect bow tie way but in something a little more profound a little more beautiful and we'll get to that once we've discussed the three but i guess we should dive right into the individual triptychs themselves So the first section we got is with Laura Dern's character. I don't know if there's a name, and I don't know if that's all that important. But the very first kind of opening where we see the city, we see the train, we hear that train coming through. We, What struck me was it felt as we started going from the bigger city to the smaller windows 
and then this woman's life, it felt like a Hitchcock film, uh, kind of like the beginning of Psycho. When we see this big city, we get closer to a building, we get closer to a window, and what is in this window in the middle of the day? A transgression. Uh, a woman is meeting up with a man for a midday tryst, which in the context of Psycho is very controversial. That same thing happens here, and we see Lordern's character in the midst of a midday tryst. She is uh, at lunch, and she has used this time to meet up with a man and sleep with him. And so we visit her in the aftermath of this as they dress, as they get ready to go back into their lives. And everything that is composed in this scene is very, it is quite dark on a very simple level, just very low lighting, but also how everything is framed. One in the shot, we see Laura Dern laying on the bed, half-dressed, looking off to the side, contemplating herself, her act, her desires. And in that same frame on the very right, we see the man freshening up in the bathroom, putting on his clothes, getting ready. And we see them both in the same frame, but wildly apart in terms of where they're at. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that it's just a steady camera shot looking at both of them at the same time. No flamboyant movement, no really harsh creative lighting, so to speak. Very simple, reduced filmmaking, if you will. And in that moment, we see the disparity between them. Although they've had this very intimate, close connection for a moment, they're ultimately very separated and apart. As we follow Laura Dern's life into her regular work, uh, herself being a lawyer at a small firm, we meet another man in her life. And this one, in stark contrast, stark contrast seems to be a little too needy, a little too wanting to be present. He is a client of hers, and she says something to the effect of, you need to call before you get here, and you can't just keep showing up at my office. And this is an older man who has been quite literally broken from his work. He was injured on site at a construction job, and the union doesn't seem to want to pay anything for him. So he sought Laura Dern's help as a lawyer, and in doing so, he's realized that the company isn't going to help him. And Lord Dern's character has expressed that same thing, that there's nothing legally he can do that is sue or otherwise. And this man just shows up because <laughs> there's a thousand things going on in his life. And Lord Dern's character seems to be the only kind of steady person that would hear him out even. But this contrast of a man who simply wants sex from her at the beginning compared to the man who wants possibly some, some emotional support, but neither really being a good fit for her life, is all conveyed within a matter of minutes, within simple 
locked off shots that say all of these things out loud pretty easy. And that really struck me when I was just sitting there watching. I was like, okay, this is like a slower pace of film. This is nice. It's nice to just kind of be in these daily lives. But as I was watching, I, I just kept seeing how how much was being communicated with so little. And again, that just speaks to Kelly Reichardt's composition and and her desire to kind of push away the theatrical, if you will, and focus in on the life, focused in on the honesty of these individuals' lives. Later on, Laura Dern's character gets a call from the first man she was sleeping with. And um, in short, the man says, can't do this anymore. Whatever is going on in his normal life is now taking precedent over whatever small portion they had. And she's sitting in her car and realizes this after the phone call. And in a beautiful moment of, of comedy and, and, and pure cinema, the law, uh, sorry, the client of hers comes back and has just gotten into a huge fight with his wife. And she's he's walking to her car, assuming that she will get he, she will give him a ride back to wherever it is that he's going. And in that beautiful moment, these two men that are opposed in her life and not even really fitting into her life collide and he gets into the vehicle she's still on the phone and it's almost a beautiful tragic comedic moment you don't necessarily laugh maybe you chuckle a bit as you look at the expression of dread on her face at the precise moment she's in but it's a bit of brilliant way to bring in comedy into such a dramatic and potentially moody moment in a moody film. And as she's driving him back and has hung up from the man, realizing that that part of her life may now be over, she's kind of left with this man she barely even wants to be around or see. The man goes on about the troubles with his wife and he complains and he can really get the sense of his brokenness in this moment and he breaks down and cries and in another funny moment Laura says something to the effect of enough you know I'm gonna leave you at the side of the road if you continue with this and so she has this broken man in her vehicle that she has to drive back to their town and you get the sense of what she longs for, what she desires. If, funny enough, through the things that she doesn't necessarily want or desire in her own life at the moment, that is these two men. So she's stuck in between desiring more and dealing with what is her present situation.
Later on in this segment, she's called to defuse a hostage situation, including her client who had just poured, her ha- poured his house out in the car. And in the middle of the night, she's called to this office. The funny thing about this standoff is it should be a very high-tension scenario, but it isn't. Uh, the hostage that the client has taken is a very large Samoan security guard who he seems to know and have befriended. And as she enters the room, everyone seems calm and quite placid. And as she enters the specific cubicle they're in, again, the Samoan guy's quite cheery, has a smile on his face, is responding calmly, even though he's tied up and on the floor. And the conversation that ensues is quite simple. He does have a gun on him, and he's ready to use it, seemingly. And he gets her to read out his case from the event and what they said and what, in fact, she said about him in regards to this ongoing lawsuit. And so she she does so. She, she starts saying and essentially comes across a section saying, that he was not fit for work because of these injuries. And so it was a little bit harsh hearing her say those exact things back to the client, who, again, didn't have any information of this previous as it was part of the lawsuit and, and what have you. But what's funny is that it, in this tense, should be tense moment, it's quite calm, it's quite still, doesn't seem like at any moment a threat could happen, even though there's a loaded gun ready ready and waiting. And again, this actually harkens back to her almost shout-out to Hitchcock. And why I say that is Hitchcock's theory about suspense versus surprise was that suspense is much more valuable than the surprise. And the context that he gives, the example he gives, is if you see a bomb on screen underneath a table where two people are talking, you're worried, oh, that could go off at any moment. That's there, that's looming, that's lingering, you know it's there. You haven't seen it go off, but it could at any moment. So that tension is up and can keep increasing as the time goes on. Now if we go into a scenario where We're just surprised by this. That is, these two people are talking. We see them talking, but we don't see where the bomb is. We don't even know there's a bomb. And all of a sudden, they both blow up and explode. You're surprised. I didn't didn't expect that coming. Jesus, my heart rate is up uh, through the roof. But it's not the same effect as the suspense that you would have if you had already seen that the bomb was there, ready to blow off at any time. So Hitchcock's theory is that Suspense is more valuable than surprise. And in this scene, we get that. Even though the scene is calm and placid, even though the scene is a little more slow than a typical hostage situation, we get the same effect. The gun is still there. Every time it's moved a bit, it feels like, oh, he can maybe snap into a mode where that's not as safe or comfortable. 
And so, again, there's a there's a bit of a callback to Hitchcock this this uh, this this style of a bit of suspense there. Now it's never exploited and then used into the context of a surprise. He doesn't shoot anyone. It doesn't fall. There's no oh that could have almost happened, but there is still a low lying suspense there that still maintains your intrigue. Now the conversation there concludes. The man decides to let go of the hostage. And he pleads with Laura Dern's character to give him a head start as he makes his getaway. Of course, as soon as Laura is let free and the man goes around the back, she just tells the police that he is gone and they easily track him down. In the next moment, we see Laura looking onto the cop car as he's being driven away to be sentenced and jailed. And that last lingering moment that we see of her is of her looking upon this man. There is a bit of sadness there, but there's also quite a bit of empathy. I don't believe that necessarily that she had given him up, but more empathy that she couldn't help him more in his life, that she couldn't help the hardships that had been brought on him, that her position as a lawyer, even though she did the fullest extent of what she could have in her role, she was still unable to help him. And as we see that last shot of her, it does even harken back to one of the first shots we see of her on the bed in the afternoon tryst. And there's a beautiful parallel there where at first she's looking off, thinking about her own life. And then at the end, she's looking off and thinking about this man's life. And we'll come back to why I feel that is important. Moving on to the second part of this triptych, we now get... And before I move on, actually, I just wanted to note, in between these sections, that is, the three pieces we're looking at, there's no really clean transition or hard cut or fade to black or sound or music to cue you going from one to the other. Instead, it simply cuts. It simply goes from one scene to a new scene. And you don't even fully realize that you're looking at a different scene altogether. Now, why that's important is that it feels like it's a slice of life you're going to one to the next. One is not more important than the other, but you need to look at both. And so there's no fancy trickery to get you into the next story, not even a moment for you to hesitate and breathe, but just enough for you to look, make the slight adjustment, and continue your attention on this next story. And the next story stars Michelle Williams, a brilliant actress, and the first bits of imagery we see her is in some running gear. And she's come to the end of her run, and we see her decked out. And as she's slowing down and walking through this wooded area, she begins to smoke. So this beautiful, stark contrast of 
the healthy part of what she wants to do and the kind of self-torture of smoking. Now, it's a bit of a moment for her to breathe and think, if you will, and uh, take in a cigarette and just uh, relax. But in a very metaphorical way, you can see that she's running. Running from or to something. Now, as we see her moving back towards her main area where she's staying, we see a tent. A young girl comes out and we realize it's her daughter. And in that small conversation, it's very forced. The daughter doesn't make eye contact. You can really sense that there's a tension in that relationship where the daughter barely wants to even be her daughter. She moves on into the tent and she is met by her husband. Now, I may be off here and I didn't actually go back to double check, which I really should, but I felt like the look of the husband we see in the second part is actually the same man we see in the first part uh, at the tryst. That is to say, it seems we are looking now at the life of the woman with whom Laura Dern's character was having an affair with in the afternoon. I don't know if I worded that right or if it made sense, but it seems like that male character continues on and links here in the stories. I say that I'm not certain is because their look is very similar. They both have beards, longer hair. They're wearing wooded, kind of wooden wilderness clothing, plaid shirts, your kind of jeans and such. Okay, yes, sorry, I just flipped back through it. <laughs> and yes, it does look like it is the same man. So now we are looking at the man's life in that phone call, the man's life in from the first one who is having the afternoon tryst with Lord Dern's character. We're not looking at his life, but I shouldn't say his life. I should say his family's life through the perspective of his wife. And the tent that they enter is not a typical camping tent. It looks like quite an elaborate, large-scale tent with a stove and, and, uh, and pots and pans. And as we continue to see later, it is very much so the basis of a house they are looking to build. Now, obviously, this all implies that there's quite a bit of wealth, which we do find out from the characters later on. But nonetheless, I mean, this is a lavish tent setup, and it is really just the beginnings of what they look to accomplish later on in building their own house. That's important, as it seems that that is the main driving goal of Michelle Williams' character. Given the tensions that we already feel in her family from the first few interactions, we can see that that house-building endeavor is something that is really important to her. Her husband seems like he's kind of a little distant and aloof. He's uh, very quick to respond, a little dismissive of her viewpoints and opinions. Uh, as they start packing up the tent to leave back to their home, there's a sense that there's an underlying resentment. And obviously that's something that us as viewers have now 
come to understand and see with the connection of the two stories. As they're leaving, they tell their daughter that they're going to stop by an old gentleman's house, which is, I believe, their friend, and look into buying some old stone that he has just sitting in the front of his yard. This upsets the teen daughter, as she was promised they would stay there no longer than they needed to. And again, we see these tensions, this underlying resentment running through each of the three parts of this family. There's a beautiful moment as they're driving towards that, where we see a shot from outside of the vehicle looking at Michelle Williams as they're having a discussion. And they're driving through the terrain, and in the reflection of the window, we start to see highlights of the rolling hills and mountains of this beautiful landscape. It's a very smart and brilliant moment where we see the landscape reflected on this family. It can do many things. It, I don't think it's one saying one concrete thing, but it definitely plays back to this idea of desires and being out in the plains and wanting something more, but dealing with the current experience you have. As they get to this older man's house and they start to talk about the stones, again, we find another man who feels just as broken, maybe even more so. He's an older gentleman that lives on his own. His wife has passed. But in his own interaction and response, again, we see he's very dismissive of Michelle Williams' points. He's very... Almost he's like he's not speaking to her when she's there. Almost like she doesn't even exist. Whenever the, whenever the husband chimes in, which is rare in the conversation, he seems to agree wholeheartedly with what he has to say. In that discussion, the... In that discussion... Uh, the husband doesn't seem to be vouching for Michelle Williams at all. He says something like, oh, you don't have to, pardon me, he says something to the older gentleman, you don't have to sell us the sandstone if you don't want. Um, she just wants to make it look nice and have older style elements in the house. Almost implying he couldn't care less. He could be flippant about the decision itself. And again, we see this struggle of this woman wanting to have a sense of something she can control, of something she can build and, and love, her home. And in many ways, the men around her don't care for it. They don't care for her feelings and endeavors. They almost look at her as a passenger along an almost an inconvenient passenger in her husband's life. So by the end of the discussion, they finally agree. The older man is just going to give them the sandstone, which Michelle becomes happy about. And as they're leaving, we again see a pretty great shot 
symbolizing this separation. Michelle William goes off to the sandstone pile to see and survey the stones herself. The man stands, sorry, the older man stands at his doorstep looking on. And her husband has a small conversation with him at the door. But in one beautiful long shot, that is, everybody's in frame. We see all three characters. We also get that distance and that separation. She says something off in the distance and the men barely hear her. They continue with their small conversation. Again, pretty much dismissing her thoughts and her feelings. And this small little contract that has just been created between them about them picking up the stones and arranging to do so feels like it's just something to satisfy her. Just a bone that they're throwing her. Which is so... So painful when, you know, as an objective viewer from the outside you're watching. But it's so crucial to her. It's so important to what it is to her. The fact that she would want to source and house the raw materials of a new home, a new foundation, of something to start and build her family upon, is looked upon so flippantly. And that must hurt so much from Michelle's perspective and just a note on the acting and this goes for each of the three main characters we're following they have such skill in being able to communicate this quiet suffering this pain that is low line but lived with and that comes through in little moments in little scenes like this and the subtle expressions we see on their face, not only Michelle Williams, but of course even previously Laura Dern, and we will soon see the uh, lesser-known actress, they have an incredible talent to let those moments of pain just rise and come up. And you're so intrigued by that. As a viewer just watching a person's face, it brings you right into their experience. It almost says more than their words could, and in many ways that their words do. Now this triptych, uh, sorry, part, this second part of this triptych ends very similarly. We see Michelle Williams looking out onto the stones, onto the backdrop, the hills, the rolling fields. And it is fall in that time, so there's not too much life Everything is sucked of its usual abundance. And as she's looking out, the landscape is almost a reflection of her own life. The dullness that she senses. We see a few birds just float up and uh, quail as they move on. And there's a glimmer of life. She points them out and says, oh, look, quail. And I feel that's important because in many ways she is trying to find the moments of life within herself, within her family. She is fighting to hold this family together when it seems that both parties, her daughter and her husband, could not be less invested. 
and again a brilliant a brilliant look out into that wilderness is just just conveys all of that and again in a similar way we end kind of like the first triptych did this woman looking out and being stuck in that area of longing for more but dealing with her current experiences that's that's a piece of brilliant filmmaking i i i love how it's being woven and and, and connected already Okay, as we move on to the third part, what's interesting about this one is that it is a bit different in tone, but still carries the same feelings of desire and longing. Now, the main actress here that is the more popular actress is Kristen Stewart, but in fact, she is quite a secondary, even tertiary role, you could say, in this final triptych. And what's more impressive is we get a, a newcomer, a lesser-known actress who is a Native woman. And we follow her. She is our main focus on this final part. Um, I do want to say her name just to at least highlight it, Lily Gladstone. So she would be the main lead in this section. Now, the beautiful thing about this part, this, this uh, final part, is that it is directly tied to the landscape, whereas the previous two were women living in a city context in this rural, prairie-like setting. Now, this one is very much kind of beginning on, on the plains, if you will. Um, Lily Gladstone's character is a ranch hand who takes care of horses. We see her in the winter. Um... And we get a bit of a slice of daily life of her feeding the horses, her caring for the horses, um, her running and and uh, maintaining the stable. She is uh, the lone character we see here, which, is, again, is unique. Um, an interesting note in all of this very still, slow, subtle progression of the film we don't get bored of seeing these slices of life once we get to the horse, the, sorry, the horses in the prairie life. Um, everything is textured, and just in the backdrop, we have this beautiful, piercing, white snowscape of mountains and hills. And again, it's this uh, very beautiful reflection of the landscape reflecting the inner world of this character as especially Lily Gladstone's character, doesn't speak so much. So this third triptych goes into a very beautiful story of Lily Gladstone running into these night courses and becoming enamored with Kristen Stewart's character, who is the uh, city girl lawyer who has come out to teach a night course in a town three hours away. And so she comes back to these courses. Sorry, that is Lily Gladstone comes back to these courses. Um, one evening, Kristen Stewart asks if she knows anywhere to eat. 
uh, as she has to abruptly leave to go return to her own town three or so hours away and then wake up to work the next morning. And so we have a nice moment in the diner. Very small, tiny discussion. More conversation coming from Kristen Stewart's end. But uh, the calm, kind of more subduedly Gladstone is just almost just seems that she's glad to have a friend, even if she's not eating, which is unique in of itself. She's glad that she has company that is not just cattle and horses and wildlife. A unique moment happens there in that she's really just watching Kristen Stewart eat which I have a personal affinity for, not necessarily watching Kristen Stewart eat, but watching people eat in film is very, very interesting. It says a lot about their character, about their background, about what they do. We see Kristen Stewart cut the hamburger in half. She's, uh, she's studied. She's polite. She's a little more refined, but she doesn't hold herself up as being something greater than what Lily Gladstone's character is. She's still eating a burger and fries. Um, and we see her character in her willingness to even share half of the burger she's not going to finish. But again, even just in the mechanics of her eating, picking up a French fry, biting into that first bite, everything is just, it's beautiful. It's textured with her character, with who she is. Um, again, to the to the incredible prowess of these women as actresses to be able to communicate a person's character while you're just eating is really strong to me um so the the that's uh, this uh third triptych continues and we kind of even get almost a triptych within a triptych if you will we see the passing of time with Lily, Lily Gladstone's experience on the ranch and caring for these uh, creatures, the feeding, the, the grooming, the, the riding. A fun little, little moment of comedy pops up when as uh, Lily drives out in a quad on this trail in the midst of this landscape, um, a little stubby corgi dog i believe starts chasing her tires and biting them all the way through so every time we go back to the similar shot there's the corgi chasing behind her and it's such a brilliant little taste of life because it probably wouldn't be particularly hilarious to the lily character herself but as a viewer looking from the outside it's this beautiful simple moment of uh of comedy of hilarity of, of levity it um it just, it just helps you kind of chuckle, laugh a little, and ease your way into the message. And so we see time pass, and Lily likes going to these night classes, which are a bunch of teachers trying to learn law, it seems, so that they could gain a little more power in each of their schools. They ask Kristen Stewart's character silly questions like, is a student allowed to swear at us? For X Y Z amount of time, um, what rules, uh, what what uh, rights do teachers have? How much can students get away with? And there's obviously these are not the questions that the course is directed towards, but this is the pressing desire of the teachers. 
And so it's funny because this ranch hand has nothing to do with this course. She just really enjoys the company of Kristen Stewart's character. So subsequent dinners come and the more conversation is had. And then as we've seen a couple days progress, uh, pardon, actually more than that progresses, as we've seen some time progress, and this has become part of Lily's routine going to see Kristen Stewart in these night classes. One night comes and Kristen Stewart doesn't show. Um, someone else takes her spot in there and immediately Lily leaves the class because she has no use for anything else. She, that evening, drives to the city she knows Kristen Stewart is from, again, over three or four hours away. And as she gets there in the late evening, starts to just kind of wander and look about the city. At first, she's in awe of this larger-scale city, of the people moving throughout the night. Um, there's this beautiful shot of her walking down a, a street, and the wind sweeps this snow across the sidewalk. And it's almost like it's just painting it across. Very soft and very beautiful. It's something that actually here in the city I really appreciate when there's it's so cold to get out and it's windy and blustery. It's really nice to take a walk in some flatter streets or sidewalks where you can see the wind being swept across in this very beautiful way. Anyways, she's Lily is enamored by the city. It is a search for this friend that she's made, but she just is in awe of this new larger city. So in this loose searching, looking in windows, viewing of people, she doesn't necessarily find a link or a direct link to this uh, Kristen Stewart's character. So she decides to park her vehicle outside of a law firm she finds and in the morning asks if they know who Kristen Stewart is. So she spent the night there in her truck just hoping to run into her again. As we see her going into another law firm after the unsuccessful first attempt, she runs into the law firm of Laura Dern. So we're now back into the office building where we started off first. We see Laura Dern come in from her lunch break and then go up the stairs. And there's no connection there. There's no, there's no outright that is acknowledgement that, oh, this is the woman from the first story. But in a very subtle way, you see her passing through Lily's life. And that in of itself, if I can pause there to talk about it, is beautiful for what it gives. That in of itself is beautiful because there's so much said there without drawing attention to it. These slices of life are interwoven and we, we get tangential connections. But it's almost it's almost beautiful. It's like this it's like seeing what, what life is like outside. Like if we, if we were to step out of ourselves and just look at individual slices of life as if you were some spirit or, or God, this is how it would seem. I don't want to dive too deep into that. 
going back to Lily's journey to find this friend, she does find a lead of the firm for where Kristen Stewart works, makes her way there, parks her car, and then sees Kristen Stewart arriving. As she gets out, she's nervous. She is none sure of what she is even doing there. And she runs into Kristen Stewart and presents herself. And Kristen is a bit taken back. She says something to the line to the effect of like, oh, you're you're here. And in Lily's awkwardness and inability to communicate, she's like, says something very, very poignant in 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 sharing her heart. She's she says, Yes, why why I have I've ha- I had no reason to continue attending the class without seeing you. And it's a very like simple sentence, but very revealing in her the depth of her feelings. And at least in my perspective, in my viewing, this is the moment where we actually see her desires that is more than friendship come to the forefront. And honestly, as I was watching, I didn't really get the sense that this woman ranch had had any feelings beyond a friendship for Kristen Stewart. That is, before this endeavor to go find her. And as they're standing there in the cold, blustery winter air, having this awkward conversation about, what are you doing here? Oh, you've, you've come to see me? But, but why? Oh, yes, I don't think I'll be going back there, and I don't even really know what's happening between us. Not much happens between them there. And as Christian, Kristen goes into her office, says her goodbye, she... She almost breaks the heart of Lily's character. And Lily gets in the truck and she's thinking about, you can see all of these thoughts running through her mind. I'm so stupid. Why did I even come? Why did I try to find her? Does she think I'm creepy? What? Why? Why am I here right now? And as she drives away out of the parking lot, we get a final shot of her looking into Kristen's office. And Kristen is at the doorway talking to a man. It is obviously just one of her colleagues, but I think we've all been there seeing somebody that we had an interest in and seeing them talk to someone from the opposite sex and being like, oh, okay. Even just visually, that is conveying to me, I'm not part of that. And even more in that shot, looking out of the truck, we see that Whatever conversation Kristen's having is encased in this glass entrance. And again, it's that much further removed. We can't reach that. We can't touch that. And so we get that final glimpse as Lily drives away. And then a beautiful, long, patient shot of Lily sitting in her truck trying to find her way out of the city thinking about everything she does. Pardon, everything she has just done, what it meant. And in that moment, we're sitting with her. Again, it harkens back to the moments that we've had with the three other women at the very end of their stories. This looking out and longing. Longing for something that is beyond their current experience, but dealing with what they have now. 
and why this is so uh, such a beautiful moment and why this is such a beautiful moment is because maybe she's never even thought of these thoughts before maybe this well of new emotions and feelings is is new to her and it angers her it frightens her because it also excites her she's never felt the depths of that she's never had the opportunity to even interact with somebody and feel that and so in a very simple way we get this moment that seems so precious in lily's mind just kind of deteriorate and evaporate what she thought it was wasn't wasn't what it actually was and again the unique thing about this moment of looking off is that we're not necessarily looking at the profile or the side of these women we're looking at them almost straight on we're looking at their faces we're looking at them with honesty with this like brutal clarity of this is them in this moment and again back to the brilliance of their acting and the nuance of the characterization we get this nice this well of emotions start to pop up lily on the verge of tears as she's driving away we've all been in a vehicle driving away from something that just tore our heart out how brilliant is that moment Again, a brilliant three-piece set of stories. Now, Kelly Reichhardt does go to the point of touching back again at the end of all of these three stories, touching back to each one, showing a bit of a coda, a bit of a this-is-what-happens-after moment for each of them. And what's nice is that it's not a resolution. It is not a nice, neat bow. Laura Dern goes and visits the man that she helped put in jail, in jail, brings him a shake and a burger, and has a meal with him, has a conversation with him. Michelle Williams' character is transporting all of the stone and helping out, bringing a stone for her. And we see that that house, that endeavor is still happening. There is something new being built there. And it does reach just beyond the physical building of her house. It's something new for her family as well. And the most poignant of them, we're back in Lily's world as a ranch hand. And we see her going about her daily life. Once again. There's a very kind of long shot, almost like a, a Scooby-Doo shot, if you will. She comes out of one stable, brings feed to another, brings one piece of equipment to another, and transfers back and forth over this long hallway and going intersecting it. And all we're doing is just watching her. And she's back in her life now. She maybe hasn't come to terms with what she had just gone through, her feelings, her thoughts. But now she is directly up against them. But still going about her life. Still working. 
And so we don't get a full resolution, but we get a beautiful sense of the continuing of life. A beautiful sense that there is something beyond that short story and these short stories and how they weave together. And so what I get from this film is, again, the empathy of looking through these women's lives, these imperfect, these struggling women, these women with unfulfilled desires, and really closely identifying with them. Not only because I was born and raised in a similar setting, being raised in a city, in the prairies, having that connection with the land, but also that sense of longing, almost the sense of being trapped under the sky, trapped under under the, the shadow of the mountains and the hills, wanting more but dealing with what you have. And so even though this film is a little more slow, is a little more subtle. It really rang out with beautiful truth and hope as we hear that soft lilting guitar start to come back in. We really get a different sense of of our own experience. And suddenly through the journey of these three women We've gained a slightly different perspective on life, on love, on marriage, on children, on friends. On the places that we were born and lived and what they mean to us and how they formed us and what we want that to be for the rest of our lives. And so it resonates with me very huge, very big about being able to like work and love and still long for something more. And although I love the place of where I was born and raised, Edmonton, Alberta, your eyes always look to the horizon of, of what is to be, of, of how my life can be better what I've done with myself and, and what I've been given but what I can go on to do beyond that and so that's a great place to end um, thank you again for joining us for episode 2.5 we'll be back later on in the week with our third episode with the rest of the guys so thank you so much for joining and we'll see you then bye bye